All right, so today I'm going to talk about hemodialysis emergencies. If only hemodialysis was this easy. Um, so in terms of objectives today, just touch upon some conditions that people present with uh, who are on hemodialysis. So it's not, a, it's not a completely comprehensive talk because there's, you know, you've probably learned stuff about how to handle heart attacks, how to handle hyperkalemia and things like that. But we'll just talk upon um, certain issues that are unique to hemodialysis patients. Now, why do we care? We see them every day. So in the most recent statistics by the National Kidney and Neurologic Disease Information Clearinghouse, there's greater than 871,000 patients who are being treated for end-stage renal disease. Now, I don't know the reason for a discrepancy in the statistics, but just under half of them are on dialysis. And this graph basically shows the percentage of them on various uh, treatments. So in terms of what we care about in this lecture, you know, the majority of them are on hemodialysis at a hemodialysis center, and then a few of them actually get home hemodialysis. The treatment for end-stage renal disease is $40 billion annually. And then in terms of risk factors, African Americans are by far people who have uh, propensity to get end-stage renal disease. So let's talk about chest pain. So you have, suppose, a 45-year-old gentleman, history of end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis, basically coming to you for chest pain. So in terms of your differential diagnosis, what are you thinking? Just blur out one thing. ACS. Okay, ACS, PE, pneumonia, aortic dissection, you know, those things that you think of. But other things that you might consider in addition are pathologic rib fractures. So patients have renal osteodystrophy. So they have a low calcium due to hyperparathyroidism, hyperphosphatemia, hypocalcemia. So that's one thing to consider. Even if there isn't any trauma, they may actually have a pathological rib fracture. The other one is anaphylactoid reaction. So anaphylactoid reaction, you may get other symptoms, but then one thing is to keep note is that Anaphylactoid reaction, you might get the symptoms onset 10 minutes after the start of hemodialysis. It's usually a reaction to either uh, whatever is in the diacylate or even the ethylene, uh, ethylene oxide that is used to uh, clean the hemodialysis machines. And then the last one, which is really a call, um, happens when a patient has a subclavian uh, diastasis catheter is getting tunnel catheter malpositioning. So usually these patients would have symptoms of chest pain when hemodiasis starts and then when it stops the chest pain resolves. So going on with chest pain, just wanted to emphasize in terms of acute coronary syndrome that this should be on the forefront of your differential diagnosis for anybody coming in with chest pain. And the statistics show that 50% of all deaths in end-stage renal disease is due to cardiovascular disease. End-stage renal disease have, uh, patients have 20% chance of being admitted for CHF or acute coronary syndrome each year. And a good percentage of end-stage renal disease patients do have some degree of uh, left ventricular dysfunction. And one thing that you should note is just think of dialysis as a stress test. So with the hemodialysis is taking a significant amount of blood out, and so person's hypovolemic and also hypoxemic because they get basically physiologically anemic. And so the bottom line, this is what I've highlighted read. If you have to remember one thing today is that end-stage renal disease having chest pain during dialysis is assumed to have cardiac ischemia until proven otherwise. 
Now, about troponins. So, you probably heard that from people in other services, also some you know, faculty here that you know, troponins could be falsely elevated in end-stage renal disease patients. That's only partially true. So, there are two kinds of troponins that we look for, the troponin I and troponin T. Which one is the one that is more likely to have false positive result? Good, troponin T. So there's actually a study in, done in 2002 in which uh, the group basically measured troponins of asymptomatic end-stage renal disease patients. And they found that 0.4 of the patients have falsely elevated TNI, and 20% of patients had a falsely elevated TNT. But what was even more interesting was that even with the TNT being falsely elevated, by having an elevation, it increases their two-year mortality from two to five times. Okay, so even if you might get, so right here at UCI, we actually get TNI. So it's really a non-issue. But if you're at another institution which uses TNT, which is basically what people have stopped using, that's one thing to think about is even if it's an elevated result and, uh, you know, it could be falsely elevated in terms of looking for acute coronary syndrome, uh, they actually do have a higher risk of death in two years. Now, there's another study uh, just looking at uh, cardiac TNI uh, in patients, all comers who came into emergency department who got troponins measured, uh, whether or not they had chest pain or not. And they found that with the TNI elevation, even without the presence of chest pain, a good percentage would have an increased 30-day 30, uh, 30 of major cardiac events, which include death, nuance at CHF, or need for revascularization so just letting you know that uh, the TNI is used at UCI. And so one thing is that if you see an elevation, it is probably real. And um, one thing that you should note is if a patient doesn't have chest pain and is looking really well, and you think that this is a false elevation, one thing you should look at is look at previous levels. And if it's the same, they're probably not infarcting. And the other thing is that if... Uh, you know, if you decide you want to discharge this patient, which is probably very rare, you should always think about at least getting more than one level, okay? Always trend it out, because if it's not rising, it's probably not an MI. But I would say, in all in all, because we're using TNI, if you do get an elevated result, have a low threshold for admitting the patient for a rollout. Now, going on. Uh, so, pericarditis, that's another thing in uh, the differential of chest pain. Now, 10 to 20% of these patients, uh, hemodialysis patients develop pericarditis. Now, it can be of the usual source, the rheumatological, uh, infectious, neoplastic, but these two entities, uremic pericarditis and hemodialysis-associated pericarditis, are two etiologies of pericarditis you should think of. Now, with uremic pericarditis, it usually happens with patients who have been recently started on hemodialysis or have not even started on hemodialysis, and usually due to the fact that they have an elevated BUN. The other entity, hemodialysis-associated pericarditis, it's usually on patients who have, who have already been on dialysis for a while, and it's just a matter that they have not gotten enough dialysis. So in terms of diagnostic evaluation, of course you're going to order an EKG on a patient uh, who has chest pain, 
But one thing of note is that patients who do not have any of the usual EKG changes, so you're thinking about diffuse ST elevations or PR depressions, if they don't have that, that's, pr uh, so, p sorry, people with uremic pericarditis don't have the S diffuse ST elevation or the PR depression. If you do see those things on the EKG, it's probably some other cause of the pericarditis. The reason being is that with uremic pericarditis, the inflammatory cells don't invade the myometrium. That's why you don't get those electrical changes. Now, the other thing is for patients who are on hemodialysis and have chest pain, you should think about doing a bedside ultrasound and primarily to look for effusion and look for tamponade. Now, if there is, uh, if there is some uh, effusion, the main treatment, mainstay of treatment is hemodialysis. Now, hemodialysis, it could be less effective if the patient has a fever of 102, white blood cell count of greater than 15, and large effusion. But usually what you do is you admit them. That's not really something you worry about, but eventually you may see on their chart that they actually got a catheter to have drainage of the uh, pericardial effusion. Now, if you see a patient who does have tamponade, one thing you should do is to give IV fluids to stabilize them, and then also do a cardiologist cardiology consult to use a catheter to drain the uh, effusion. Now one thing that you know we have in our in our pocket is to do pericardiocentesis. This is something you can do here in the emergency department but the thing is is that because the effusion is fibrinous and it's hemorrhagic you may have a difficult time actually removing the effusion because it's just loculated. So that's one thing to note is that if you're going to uh, do the pericardiocentesis it may actually be uh, very difficult for you to do and you may actually have to go on to other measures such as getting cardiothoracic surgery to do a pericardial window. Dr. Wong? Yeah. How much fluids would you start with a person who's on dialysis? You know, maybe a little... I would say definitely if the patient is hypotensive, you want to try to increase the yeah. amount of um, uh, intravascular volume. I would say probably like 250 cc's at a time. Just a little. Yeah. It just seems kind of counterintuitive though, right? Because in someone who's on dialysis and they're like hypotensive from the fact that their heart isn't contracted very well, like do you think the yeah. fluids would make a huge difference, I guess, becomes the question versus, I understand what you're saying about it being loculated, so you wouldn't be able to do a pericardiocentesis anyway, but is it, it's just like temporizing measures. Yeah, it's just a temporizing measure. All right, so air embolism is another entity I wanted to talk about. This is an entity that's... Uh, is very rare now with better hemodialysis machines that basically stop if there's air detected in the line. But it's something that you should think about. Um, you know, if there's any mistakes, sometimes some of our patients actually stay in the ER and have hemodialysis. So if this ever happens to you, you know how to deal with it. Okay? So air embolism is where, you know, you get. Yes, Scott. This was on my board exam. Yes, and you should know for your board exam. But I mean, this is, would you tell them what the burns went in your head? Yeah. So, um, the teaching is, if you have a patient who has hemodialysis who's in a seated position, usually they'll have neurologic symptoms, so syncope or seizure, because the, um, the, the way it works is that the air goes into IV and goes up retrograde to your IG and goes into your uh, brain. Now, in lying position, the air bubble is more likely to stay in your heart and, car um, and your lungs. So, you'll be, so patients typically would complain of chest pain, shortness of breath, have hypoxemia or cyanosis. And in terms of diagnosis, people say classically you'll hear a mill wheel murmur. Uh, 
it's something that I've never heard. I actually tried to do a Google search to see if I could demonstrate so everyone can hear it, but I couldn't. I had a hard time trying to find it. But basically, they say it's machine-like, continuous. You'll know it when you hear it. And it's basically the air mixing with the blood as the blood is being pumped. So in terms of treatment, you probably already have an IV and monitor already in place. Um, but address the ABCs and O2. You know, if they're not if they're not awake, you're going to have to intubate. Immediately stop dialysis, clamp the catheter, and then put the patient in left lateral decubitus position, trendelin position. So that's basically trying to keep the air in the right ventricle and preventing it from going elsewhere. Now, uh, some salvage maneuvers you can do is to ask, try to aspirate the IV. If the patient goes into cardiac arrest, of course, give CPR. And one thing that had been noted in the uh, textbook is basically do a thoracotomy and actually aspirate the air from the right ventricle. I'm not sure how practical it is, but it is something to think about. And then if you do have resources for a hyperbaric oxygen, basically dive them. All right, next thing I'm going to go on is to talk about dyspnea. You already know the usual suspects. PE, pneumonia, pneumothorax, um, otherwise. And, but the three things I wanted to emphasize is volume overload, congestive heart failure, and high output heart failure. So with um, volume overload, it's basically self-explanatory. Um, so usually happens like if a patient misses dialysis appointments, maybe it's a holiday weekend and the dialysis center is closed, so they come after the holiday weekend uh, complaining of some shortness of breath. Now, the BNP does not necessarily correlate with volume overload, so don't be lulled into uh, you know, an area of comfort if you see that the BNP is not elevated. Really, the best way to tell whether the patient is um, fluid overloaded is if the patient is way over their dry weight. And basically, the treatment is hemodialysis. With congestive heart failure, one thing to note is that if a person presents with congestive heart failure and have end-stage renal disease, it is a predictor of mortality. So 83% mortality in three years. Now, one thing you guys should know, just like in troponin, uh, BNP can also be falsely elevated in end-stage renal disease because uh, it is partially renally excreted. But one thing to keep in mind is that if you're able to measure the, if you do measure the BNP and it is less than 300, not the typical 100 cutoff for a person with normal functioning kidneys, but 300, it's not likely congestive heart failure. So the treatment for this is the usual stuff for um, uh, for CHF. So consider BiPAP. The best thing to do is hemodialysis for these patients, and then as a temporizing measure, use nitroglycerin. Lasix can also be considered, but of course the patient's not going to urinate. But then one thing is it does cause some vasodilation, so it can give a little bit of, uh, helps you as a temporizing measure. But one thing is that the effect of Lasix is not uh, the same in every person, so you might not get a good effect with it. Sorbitol PO is something that you may consider in which you can basically have the person taking the sorbitol and basically osmotically brings all the fluid into the gut and that's how you can get rid of fluid. And then the, uh, the one um, treatment that you can consider but you're sort of playing with fire is doing phlebotomy. So um, you can take around like 250 cc's of blood out 
and that can help as a temporizing measure for a person in acute CHF who, is, who has end-stage renal disease. One, why you're playing with fire is because typically these patients are already anemic, and so by making them more anemic, you may make the condition worse. The last entity I want to talk about in terms of dyspnea is high output heart failure. And basically, it's, um, you know, with AV shunts, you have the artery connected to the vein and there's no capillaries in between. So there's a, always a potential for more blood to go to the heart. And so with this, um, with this entity, uh, you'll typically see on physical exam that the patient has warm extremities, have a wide pulse pressure, they may have bounding pulses and hyperconnect uh, heart, and the treatment for it is surgical banding. So basically, decreasing the amount of blood that flows through the uh, fistula. Next entity is altered mental status. So differential diagnosis, the usual suspects. So you think about electro electrolyte abnormalities, hypoglycemia, infection, etc. We've already talked about air embolism, so a patient who's sitting up, if they get syncope or seizures, that's one thing you think about. And then the other things that happen uh, more often in patients with end-stage renal disease, intracranial hemorrhage, dialysis, dialysis disequilibrium syndrome, and dialysis <laughs> dementia. So let's first talk about intracranial hemorrhage. So you guys know how to deal with this, but one thing to emphasize is have a very low threshold to do a head CT on a patient with altered mental status who has end-stage renal disease. The reason why they are at increased risk of getting intracranial hemorrhage is because they usually have comorbidities, including hypertension, and they're also uremic. And the usual kind of bleeding they get is subdural hemorrhage. So diagnosis, head CT, and then for treatment, consult neurosurgery. And one thing that you can do to try to overcome the uremic platelets is to give DDAVP. Now the other two entities I just wanted to talk about, it's just for your knowledge. It's something that I don't think you as emergency physicians would be able to diagnose here in the emergency department. You'll probably be admitting the patient and say, hey, this is something for you guys to consider. So. Uh, this is so one of them is dialysis disequilibrium syndrome. So basically, the person becomes altered because he gets uh, cerebral edema due to rapid osmotic shifts. People who are at risk for it are people who are new to dialysis, pediatric patients, and patients with a history of stroke. In addition to altered mental status, they may be complaining of headache, nausea, blurred vision, or they may be seizing, and that's one thing to consider for patients seizing, and if they are basically not awake. So the treatment is mainly supportive and then one thing that you can do is to give mannitol if the patient has persistent seizures. The next thing is dialysis dementia. So dialysis dementia, uh, it's more of a gradual onset so you'll be having a patient come in and the family's like, yeah, he's just not been acting right, it's been going on for a few months and it's been getting worse, we've been going to all these people and they don't know what's going on. So it's usually caused by aluminum toxicity and diacetylate. So nowadays, uh, nephrologists have gone away from using aluminum in their diacetylate, and there have been better water treatment methods. So this is an entity that actually happens um, less and less. However, it's one thing to keep in mind, just because there have been case reports here and there, um, like in the MMWR in 2008, basically talked about how there were some impurities in the water in the plumbing that they had that dialysis patients had been connected to and as a result they've been getting aluminum toxicity and also there's uh, and also they had 
components in the machine that was causing to have, uh, causing the patients to be exposed to high levels of aluminum. And the treatment for it is desferoxamine. Next thing I'm going to talk about is vascular access complications. So first, I'm going to go over the different kinds of vascular access, and then we'll talk about the complications. So the first, uh, uh, first vascular uh, access entity I want to talk about is AV fissia. So the AV fissia is probably the most preferred access for hemodialysis patients. It's because it's least prone to complications, and it's the longest lasting out of any other hemodialysis access. The problem is, is that usually uh, it's the longest mature. It takes up to six months to mature be before being used. And so as a result, it's not as popular as it, it should be. On physical exam, you should, in order to tell it apart, um, you can, you'll find that the patient has a scar. It's usually squishy when you're pressing on it. And it usually runs straight along the natural vasculature because it's basically they just put in the artery and vein as close to each other as possible. The next type is um, grafts. So usually here in the US, they use Gore-Tex for hemodialysis grafts. This is probably the most uh, popular method here in the US. And the reason being is that uh, it only takes a few weeks to mature, and then they can use it. However, given the fact that it doesn't have the natural defenses as the uh, native vessels have, they're more prone to infection and more prone to bleeding. In terms of physical exam, you'll see the patients usually having more than one scar on their arm. It's usually rigid too when they examine the patient, and it can be of any shape in terms of what the vascular surgeon decided to do in terms of anastomosing the vessel. The last kind of vascular access is um, is tunnel catheters. So usually tunnel catheters are large bore double lumen catheters. And they're usually used for emergent dialysis. These catheters last six months to a year. So the advantage, as I said, it's, it can be used immediately. However, they're the most prone to thrombosis and infection. And in addition, they may get what's called central venous stenosis. This is probably an entity you've you also hear about patients who get central uh, centralizes this central venous stenosis. And with this stenosis, it basically precludes those vessels from being able to be used later on for uh, AV fistulas or grafts. Now, I want to emphasize in terms of important things to, that uh, you should know about when you're handling fistulas here in, in, in the emergency department. So on physical exam, um, we always want to have in the chart the presence of a thrill. And the other thing is always listen for a brewery. Normally, the breweries in hemodialysis uh, fistulas are low-pitched and continuous. If you hear a high-pitched or discontinuous murmur, uh, sorry, discontinuous brewery on the, um, uh, over the fistula, that's concerned for stenosis. Um, so just remember, do not place the blood pressure cuff on the access arm. And then in terms of central access, if you need to get central access, avoid upper lines. So avoid IJ and subclavian lines. And that's for the same reason why tunnel catheters are, not, uh, um, are avoided because it can cause central venous stenosis and it can cause thrombosis. And as a result, if that happens, then um, nephrologists can't use the access for future, uh, uh, future fistula sites. So blood draws are okay in the access arm if it is downstream from the access. 
Now, if you, if you have a patient who's coding and there's no access, that's probably the one circumstance that you can actually access their fistula. But there are a few things to note. Make sure that it's sterile, so use betadine to access the fistula, and then place it one to two centimeters distal to anastomosis.